Hey everyone, welcome to Pod Rocket. Today, uh, Kaylin and I are here with Aaron Gustafson, who works on PWAs and accessibility at Microsoft. How are you, Aaron? Not doing too bad. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, we're really excited to talk to you today. Um, maybe you could give us a brief overview um, of some of the things you're working on at Microsoft, maybe a quick overview of your career, and uh, we can go from there. <laughs> quick overview of my career is a little bit of a tall order <laughs> for, uh, you know, Trying, trying to hit our time frame here for a, a podcast. Um, so I, I work at Microsoft. I'm uh, officially on sort of the more evangelism side of things for the web. Um, so I'm on our ecosystem team within developer experiences for the Edge browser. Um, but I have kind of been working in and around the standards world for web standards for quite a long time. Um, I used to be one of the, the managers of the Web Standards Project back in the day, um, and I am currently the editor-in-chief for List Apart, which obviously has had a lot of uh, intersections with the Web Standards movement over the years. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I work on Web Standards stuff specifically around PWAs a lot of the time, although I kind of view everything through an accessibility and inclusive design lens. Um, so that kind of factors into a lot of the stuff that I do. And when I'm not doing... PWA and standards work, um, I'm often working in the space of diversity, inclusion, allyship, and belonging, um, trying to sort of build a, a more inclusive Microsoft and, and sort of create the the sort of company that, that we want to be working on and create safe spaces for people. Awesome. Well, a lot to unpack there. Um, maybe we could start with PWAs, um, just sure. in, in case folks aren't familiar, like what's a PWA and um, why should people be building them? That's the $10 million question. Uh, what's a PWA? So PWA stands for Progressive Web App. I think a lot of people get hung up on the app portion of that. And, and you know, defining what is a web app is really very subjective. I think Jeremy Keith has a, a good way of framing it. It's a lot like, you know, defining brunch. Um, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things that's kind of hard to, to put a specific definition on. So I, I tend to get people to focus on the progressive end of it and to think of it as sort of a... It's a website that's enhanced, and it's enhanced in a number of ways. That could be for installation, it could be for better performance, better offline handling, um, any of a number of, um, of ways that you can experience it. So better UX overall, um, but really it's it's just sort of the best in class for building for the web today. And you know, I'll, I'll admit it's been a few years since I've looked at anything re related to progressive web apps, but like my vague memory is that essentially you you have a web application and you can create like a i think it's like a manifest file or something that spells out some additional properties and functionality and then on android not sure what the what the deal is with ios but on android you can then down uh, i guess not, not sure if it's download or, or whatnot but you can save that after your home screen and it kind of becomes a hybrid of a website and a web and an app and a, uh, a native app. Is that still accurate? And maybe you I, could expand on. Yeah, that. yeah, I'd say it's expanded a lot since then. So you know, Chrome was, and specifically Chrome on Android was sort of the first platform to really pick up on a lot of the technologies for PWA. Um, but many of these things have been around for quite a long time. So you mentioned the web app manifest. That is sort of the representation of how you want your website to appear within the context of. Uh, the host operating system, whatever that is. Um, and so that's that's one of three sort of technical, um, 
I don't know, te technical requirements for having a PWA. You've got the web app manifest, um, kind of at a lower level than that, you have, you need to be on HTTPS because if you're not uh, hosting securely, a lot of the APIs that you want to have access to are not going to be available to you. Um, thankfully, that's become a lot easier to do than it used to be back in the day. Um, and then you have the service worker, which helps you to manage your networking, uh, offline experiences, improving performance and all that sort of stuff as well. Um, so installation, sort of the add to home screen experiences, which you're describing for, for Android, that was sort of the first pass. Um, and there is a way of doing that. I mean, if, I, I've been on working on the web and, and, and mobile for a really long time. So I remember back when iOS actually didn't have apps apart from the, the ones that were natively built in. Um, and we actually had to create web apps to put something on your home screen. So like the, the add to home screen concept for the web has actually been around for quite a long time. Um, and yet, oddly, uh, at least as of today, uh, Apple does not currently support the web app manifest. It was all like uh, meta attribute or, or meta tag rather um, values that were pulled in to, to create sort of that experience. So the the I think it's like app, Apple touch icon and, and those various meta tags. Um, but you know that's that's sort of evolved, and um, even in Edge, the the previous version that was sort of built on uh, an overhaul of, of the IE engine. Um, we supported installation uh, of, um, of PWAs there, um, but now uh, the Edge has moved to Chromium. We have installation on desktop as well on Windows, on Mac. Um, when we eventually go uh, go with the final release of the Linux version of Edge, um, that will be there as well. Um, and Chromium, all Chromium browsers have that functionality. Samsung Internet has that. Um, and also sort of since that time, the various app catalogs specifically play the Microsoft Store and Samsung Internet uh, or Samsung's rather uh, app store all also carry PWAs and allow them to be installed just as though they were native apps. Um, so there's there's sort of a lot more distribution options now for PWAs and they can really act as a, a wholesale replacement for you know, where you are making investments in, you know, C++ or, or Kotlin or whatever, you know, where you're, you are doing some sort of, um, of compiled app, you no longer have to do that and can actually uh, meet your needs just doing web tech. Impressive. Um, they've been around for quite a while, as you've said, um, but I haven't really seen like take off as much as other newer web technologies. What would you say like the barrier of entry for PWAs are right now? And um, I guess, how does that inform what you're working on and standards? So I think that the barrier to entry is not very high at all. And I think people, I think part of, part of it is there are some misconceptions that were basically reinforced by the way that PWAs first came about. So, you know, Ben mentioned, um, you know, Android. And so, you know, because Android was one of the first places that this happened, people thought, oh, it's mobile only. Um, you know, people thought that it was, you know, specifically a Google technology, which it hasn't been. Um, a lot of the stuff in the web app manifest actually existed from the days where uh, Mozilla had their Firefox OS, um, you know, and, and the web apps that were being used there. And, and in fact, web as apps has existed as a concept for quite a long time. I think Windows 8 had apps you could build using web tech, you know, Adobe Air way back in the day which was the Adobe integrated runtime. You could use either uh, web or flash to build apps. Um, certainly web OS. Yeah. All, all of these things like you, you could have, um, you could have web apps, you know, even, even before the days of sort of the, the packagers that would take a website and convert it into uh, an application. Um, so, you know, I think, I think there's sort of, 
I don't know, this, this longstanding um, misconception that this is a mobile only thing or that it's really hard to do or that, you know, we need to create bespoke experiences for different operating systems, which I don't disagree with wholeheartedly, but I think um, a lot of people tend to get caught up in this idea that they need to create something that is is very, you know, quote unquote native. I don't really like using that term, but, you know, to that operating system that has the look and feel of that operating system. Um, when I would argue that it's probably more important to have consistent brand experience across a variety of different platforms, because, you know, I, I know a lot of people who ha- live in sort of a hybrid world where they might have, you know, an iPhone, but then have a Windows machine and then have like another device that might be Android. Maybe it's like their television is Android based or something like that. And within the same application, if you were to have a vastly different UI in all of those contexts, you might then have to relearn that in all those different contexts. And it'd be better to have a consistent brand experience across all of that. And if you can achieve that user experience and, and brand experience that you want using web tech, why not go all in on that? And I think that's, you know, that's certainly what we've seen. Um, some companies embracing like Twitter, for instance, they ended up replacing their their Windows app, uh, which was a, a UWP app in the store with the PWA fairly early on after they launched the the light version of Twitter, which was their, their PWA experience. And then the PWA actually ended up taking over their .com site. So now it's all the same experience and they can kind of control that, roll out new features and everything all in one place without having to kind of jump through all the hoops to get updates to a variety of different platforms where you're relying on spinning up APIs and then implementing those in each of the different, you know, frameworks or, or languages that you're having to do it, get it put into the store, get it distributed, all, all of those sort of things. Whereas on the web, it's just instantaneous that you, you would get those changes out there. Um, which is why I think we're seeing a lot of companies like Twitter and, and Lyft and uh, uh, Uber's made investments here, Trivago, uh, Starbucks. Um, yeah, lots of companies are embracing PWAs now. I'm curious, one of the, when you initially uh, mentioned some of the benefits of a PWA performance was one of the things you mentioned. And, you know, typically, or traditionally, people, I think, felt that, you know, in order to get a top performing app, you kind of have to go native and hybrid or apps built with web technologies are often you know, slightly worse or significantly worse for performance. So are there maybe some things people don't know about PWAs that, or you know, tools in the PWA toolkit that let you build a highly performant application? So I think it, it all comes down to what your needs are for a specific site. I don't, I don't think there's, you know, there's, there's general things like having a good offline experience and, you know, caching as many resources as you can up front and, and especially things obviously that people are going to need. I think it comes down to also thinking about how am I architecting my app um, and, and sort of what is the impact of that on the overall user experience? Because I think a lot of, a lot of folks nowadays are, really going for that thick client where they've got this huge JavaScript library that they're they're loading into the thing. And that may not, like, it, it has a lot of um, improvements for developer experience, but not necessarily for user experience. Um, and, and I think there's a strong trade-off there, um, especially when you consider sort of the long tail of devices that may be lower powered, especially as you start to stretch across the world or just even into more rural areas in like the United States where we are, right? Or at least where I am. Um, so being able to have something that's going to be performant everywhere sort of requires us to actually think about performance in, in more of a holistic sense and make 
design decisions and architecture decisions that are supportive of that and that don't prioritize developer convenience and developer ergonomics over that end user experience. Um, and so, you know, I think kind of once you've gone down that path, which is more of a like philosophical approach, then you can begin to see like, okay, how do we go about, you know, making this the, the best experience, the snappiest experience? Um, I know Airbnb, they just did a talk at PWA Summit and they were talking about integrating things like haptic feedback, which is not a performance thing, but gives it more of, you know, kind of that traditional app feel, right? Something that's a, a, you don't see on the web that often. Um, but they also have things like page transitions that they're experimenting with, which is sort of a new new experimental thing um, where you can actually identify elements that are going to be consistent between pages and allow the browser to kind of adjust what's happening as you're moving from, from one experience to another to create that more sort of seamless flow um, that a lot of people immediately reach for a single page app you know, framework in order to achieve um, because they want to have that native like experience and, and other ways that are starting to come about that we can do that natively within the browser without having to throw a ton of extra JavaScript at it, um, which ends up clobbering performance, you know, as much as we might like to think that, um, you know, that would improve performance, it, it does not. <laughs> so, and I mean, the other thing to think about is that there are a lot of folks um, who don't download apps specifically because they're so large and PWAs can be like a fraction, like a 10th or smaller than the equivalent as a binary app downloaded from an app store. Um, so that, I think that's another thing to consider, you know, how quickly can I get people into this experience? Um, how, um, I don't know how, how little uh, of their resources can I take up and, and in order to remain a part of their, um, their life and their experiences, because, you know, if, if it comes down to, you know, do I keep this app or do I keep these photos of my kid, the app's going to go, right? Like that's, that's just the reality. And, and so the more we can kind of be aware of how people are using their devices and, you know, kind of consume as little as possible, really, like it's, it's sort of that, that same idea and, and not to be, um, I don't know, sort of, of gluttonous about resources and how much we want to take for ourselves and start to think about how we can we can kind of put our apps on a diet, I guess. Um, so you're a spec writer at W3C, um, and you've talked a lot about uh, the direction that you think the web is going. Can you talk about uh, what you're currently working on? Sure. Uh, if it's not a secret, that is. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I'm pretty transparent about a lot of the things that I'm working on. Um, so I am uh, an editor on the Web App Manifest spec. So that, you know, as we as we talked about, kind of defines what the the um, the app looks like in the context of the OS. Sort of my my um, prideful moment about that is I helped to land something called shortcuts, which allows you to define sort of the the long press or force touch on your app icon to have a couple of quick actions that you could take from a web app. Uh, so that's that's within the manifest now. Um, and I'm pretty proud of that. Um, but I also work on the um, image resource um, spec, which is consumed by the web app manifest, as well as notifications. And I think the payment request API uses it as well. And that sort of defines uh, how we can put images into uh, JSON documents and what, what sort of fields we need for that from an accessibility standpoint, from a processing standpoint, and, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, kind of not not necessarily a super sexy spec, but something that's uh, an important sort of uh, underlayment to a lot of what's going on in, in that space. Um, and then I also work on something called the app information supplement to the manifest, which is concerned with how do our 
PWAs show up in app catalogs. So that includes things like being able to define a description, to, be, to have screenshots, to have you know a rating um, using like the IARC rating system um, categories. Uh, one of the things that I'm working on right now is being able to um, include pointers towards the policies that affect your app. So things like your terms of use, your privacy policy, accessibility statement, that sort of stuff. Um, so that can be consumed by an app catalog and then used to create your product page, um, which should hopefully help help with distribution and stuff like that. Um, I've also got a couple of other things that I've been working on. I've been trying to um, pitch the service worker folks on an update to the cache API to actually give us some visibility into things like, okay, how, how long has this resource been stored in the cache? How big is it? Uh, when was the last time it was accessed, that sort of stuff, so that we can actually get a little bit more particular about how it is that we're managing our caches within the context of a service worker. So we can, for instance, if we've got really big files that haven't been accessed in six months, let's go ahead and purge those from the cache so we can keep our footprint lower, right? That, that sort of stuff, as opposed to um, the sort of I, don't know, I would consider it like sledgehammer approach that we have for cache management within service worker right now, which is basically like, okay, I'm only going to allow up to 50 images in this image cache that I've designated. And, you know, once I've got that 51st one, I'm just going to throw away the first one that I stored. Well, that first one may be needed. <laughs> so like you, you've just thrown away something that, that could have been accessed like on every page because it was your logo, for instance. And that happened to be the first image that was cached. So I think we need to, to have some smarter tools for how to manage that. And we can see that stuff in dev tools today, but it's not exposed to us as developers on an individual implementation basis because, you know, you may have a specific user who spends a lot of time in one portion of your app. And so those are the more critical assets to them than what's happening over here. So you can't kind of take the one size fits all approach. You want to create kind of a tailored performance for individual users. And that would allow that. I see. Uh, I remember cash being a very common pain point uh, when the surface worker spec first landed, uh, especially when I, when I tried it. Uh, it sounds like you're working on a lot of foundational stuff. Um, my question, is it hard to like write specs for features that are consumed by other teams. That sounds like a lot of uh, interop interoperability that's required. And can you give us an, uh, some insight on in, in how that works, I guess, behind the scenes? Sure. I mean, it, every, every spec's a little bit different in terms of how it, it sort of germinates. But um, we start out by usually writing an explainer that proposes, you know, here, here are the use cases that we're trying to solve for. Here are some approaches that we considered. Here's, here's the approach that we're recommending. Um, and here's why, here's what that would look like. And then, you know, from a, you know, if that gets picked up, moving it into sort of a, a standards body, a lot of times what you're doing is, is you're authoring that document to try and explain how in, in sort of generalized terms, how to implement X, Y, and Z features. So, you know, for, for instance, in, in terms of looking at this uh, policy piece that I'm, I'm hoping to add to the app info spec, I'm looking at that and I'm saying, okay, here, here is this um, you know, enumeration of different policy types. Here's a good way of modeling that within the manifest in an extensible um, manner um, that's easy to parse that you know, is, is sort of knowledge that you start to, to gain as you work with more browser vendors. Because I, I am not someone who's on engineering doing the implementation in the, the spec, so I have to write things that are consumed by those engineers. Um, 
And so then you you break down the steps for processing, you know, that particular thing and try and be expl- as explicit as possible. In a lot of cases, it's, you know, figuring out where you need to reference another spec or something like that in order to tell people what it is that they're dealing with. Um, and thankfully, there's some pretty good tooling um, it, within the W3C to help you to author those things or to find cross-references to other specs and things like that. Like if you're trying to figure out what is the URL format that I'm working with or, or what have you. Um, so that that sort of is, is how you end up starting out. And then it's a lot of learning kind of by talking to the other people who are working on the spec who'll say, oh, you know, a way that you probably should approach that is doing this. Or, or if you reference this other spec, you can see they approached a similar problem in, in this way. And it would probably be, be good to align those or, or those sorts of things. So a lot of it becomes sort of you take an initial stab at it. And then you get sort of iterating feedback from other people who are involved in the, the standards process to kind of help you to improve that and align it with existing specs or make sure that it's as um, prescriptive as necessary um, for implementers to make sure that everybody's able to build interoperable implementations um, on kind of the other end. That makes sense. Hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, great. Like most things, I guess, more, more communication works. Yes. Yeah, we, we use GitHub a lot. Uh, so as an employee of Microsoft and also uh, someone who contributes to W3C, uh, uh, as you mentioned earlier, Edge recently switched to Chromium. Uh, and I know that the number one conversation in the web community when that, when that was uh, published was the fact that we're getting less uh, competition between browsers. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of wondering, like, is, is that something that... Uh, that concerns uh, engineers that log uh, engineers at Microsoft and uh, like, what do you think about competition in the browser space? Yeah, I think it is something that is concerning and certainly something that a lot of us thought about. I mean, I I very much mourned the move of Opera, for instance, to Chromium a couple of years back as well, um, and I had serious concerns about um, you know our our move to Chromium not necessarily from a, um, you know, that I, that I didn't think that it was the right approach for edge, but from that standpoint of, oh gosh, you know, what does this mean in terms of standards? I think it does present some challenges for the standardization process, which currently requires multiple interoperable implementations, which I, I think, and I'm not 100% sure, but I, I think it's two now that they've adjusted it to. Um, it was three, I thought, at one point. Um, but what it it does shift the balance of power a little bit in that um, in that sort of paradigm, where you know, for whatever reason, if you know certain other browsers decide not to support something or implement something, that it it can basically stall that technology being able to roll out more broadly, um, which is is sort of a it's a double edged sword because it like I totally get why people would say, you know what, we don't, we're not really big fans of the spec. I mean, I, I remember going through this with WebSQL back in the day where uh, Internet Explorer and Firefox basically pushed back against that and said, we need something that's not based on another piece of software, you know, SQLite in that case. Um, and then IndexedDB was, was proposed and there was that really kind of squishy time in the middle where like you couldn't reliably use web SQL, um, but IndexedDB had zero implementations. And so it was kind of like, okay, well, what do we do? We need to solve this problem. Um, 
and you know, I, I do think that there is, I don't know. I, I feel like there's a challenge there in terms of trying to figure out, um, you know, what is, or, or what should be on a standard track versus what should be something that only, you know, one browser engine, which may have multiple, multiple organizations working within it, contributing to it, which Chromium does. I mean, in the, the PWA space, we've got obviously Microsoft, Google, Intel is, is working in that code. Um, Samsung is working in that code. So we do have a lot of companies that are sort of weighing in on proposals to add features to the web platform. And it's not like it's that, that one team can kind of run roughshod over everything, right? There, there is a lot of discussion about, you know, who's supportive of this and who's not. Um, I do feel, and this is just me speaking as me, not me speaking as a, a representative of Microsoft. I do feel like there's probably going to need to be some adjustments to the way that we approach the standardization process. Um, simply because the reality on the ground is that not all browsers are resourced similarly in terms of their their engineering teams and stuff like that. And there's only so much capacity. Um, and so, you know, it it's entirely possible that there may be something that let's say Mozilla, for instance, is really in favor of, but they don't have the bandwidth to take it on in the next six months or a year or something like that. Does that mean it should be held back from moving in a standards track? You know, I would argue no, even though they don't, we don't have a second interoperable implementation. Um, I mean, I, I guess the standards process would require that it wait to be, you know, quote unquote, finalized and become a recommendation until then. And maybe that just doesn't end up mattering uh, quite as much, whether something is has made it to recommendation status or not, or whether it's okay to have it be, you know, a, a pretty far along working draft um, or something of that nature. But, you know, I think that the goal of having things get to the point of being a recommendation is is really that that ideal state and i think if we achieve consensus that should be pretty good um, that, that people can feel secure in working with that technology so that they can move forward even if the experience may not be borne out in all browsers right away they have have the sense that that will eventually be supported in other places so it sounds like you want more flexibility, essentially. Yeah, I think we we probably will need some some greater flexibility. Um, you know, we're we're still trying to figure all of that stuff out as to to how that ends up um, playing out. But I I will say that we end up with a lot of conversations in the Chromium space and certainly in the W three C space as well, where um, where we're having conversations in and among all of these different browser manufacturers um, around things that may not be on the the plate uh, or, or even the backlog for, for some of the browsers that are participating. Um, I'm curious to learn a bit about Project Fugu. Um, can you tell us more uh, about that? Sure. Project Fugu is a code name for sort of a, a group of um, enhancements to the, the web. And the reason that it's called Project Fugu, if folks aren't familiar with what Fugu is, um, that's Blowfish or... or um, uh, porcupine fish, depending on where you are. Um, but fugu, when you make sushi out of it, you have to be very careful in the way that you cut it, because if you cut it wrong and nick the swim bladder, if I remember correctly, um, it will make it uh, poisonous and can kill you. Um, so it's it's one of those things that's kind of a catch-all for things that are very um, uh, high risk, shall we say, for for things that features that we would be adding to 
the uh, the browser. I would say some some more so than others. Things like file system access, right? Like that's that's a pretty um, you know being granted that permission is a big responsibility, um, and so we need to be really cautious about how we're approaching some of that stuff. Um, you know, some of the other Fugu features, I would I would say, are probably not quite as as scary as that. Um, but yeah, that's kind of become the the overarching. Um, umbrella term for a lot of these sort of next-gen uh, app APIs and, and such. Yeah, I'm curious, like, more on that point, how you think about security overall with features like that. Like, I feel like one of the great advantages of the web, and, and I, I guess maybe this is a false sense of security I have, but like, I, I feel like I can kind of go to any website and as long as I don't download anything or, you know, grant camera access or microphone access, it's unlikely a, you know, I, tr I trust the sandboxing and security mm -hmm. of, the, of Chrome, Safari, of the major browsers. Yeah. As soon as you kind of go down this road of starting to give more and more API access, obviously very useful to developers and certain applications, but, you know, it presents much more risk to the user. So how do you think about kind of that balance and w ways maybe to, to allow some of these APIs while protecting users who may be less savvy? Yeah, I, I think that certainly in my work, and I, I try and encourage this and everybody else is to to think from that sort of privacy preserving and security preserving stance first. And I think a lot of people who are working on these specs are coming from that perspective. Um, and so making sure that, you know, access requires a permission that being able to um, initiate a request to a particular API requires user interaction, you know, those, those sorts of things, building awareness within the browser for things like when your camera is on, when your microphone is on. Um, another proposal that I have that I'm, I'm hoping to make some traction on over the next year is sort of a, a first run experience, um, or first run, uh, permissions prompt. And so the idea is that within a, uh, PWA context, when you install, your your website becomes reparented to its own window, which is its app window, right? And um, in that context, you may not, or you may have already been granted a certain number of permissions. Um, often when we build apps that have particular permissions, think about a, a communication tool like what we're using right, right now. We've got camera and microphone access that are required for this. Um, if this were a PWA, then they could potentially define those as the permissions that they're going to, that are like high need, <laughs> basically, like things that are, um, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to call them absolute requirements, but but these are the things that if you're, if you're going to participate in the core experience that this app is providing, you're probably going to need to provide these, right? Um, and then there's sort of the nice to have stuff. Um, and in, in the approach that I'm taking to it, I, I would like to see us enumerate that in the manifest and then when the app gets reparented, have a window come up that basically uh, enumerates those various permissions that are being requested. And re regardless of what you have um, granted or denied before, you'll be represented with, with those permissions. And then you can make the choice as to whether you want to grant it or whether you want to deny it um, or you know have that prompt you later when it actually wants to access that thing. So you, users would still be in control. Um, but it sort of gives an app a, a chance to um, re-request potentially that information because it's so core to the experience of the app. Um, and I see that sitting side by side with the existing permissioning model. So um, apps can kind of have their, their you know, really core permissions that they need for their app and sort of their nice to have things. Um, so maybe, you know, 
for instance, maybe Maps decides that they don't need geolocation absolutely for their product because you may not be using turn-by-turn directions or you may not want to locate yourself on the map. And so we can wait to use that until we actually need it. And the user says, oh, no, I do want to get turn-by-turn directions while I'm driving. Then you need my location and, and you know, we'll, we'll ask for it at that point. Um, you know, I think we also need to, to be smarter about how long we're granting permissions for um, sort of creating better auditing experiences for permissions as well. Um, so things like maybe auto, auto resetting permissions when you haven't accessed a site after X months, right? Um, those sorts of things. And, and I had another uh, proposal that I put together that was basically like time-limited permissions where I, as a developer, could say, I only want this permission for the session and then go ahead and reset it. And that would be a way that we could be a little bit more upfront with our users that, hey, you know, I don't want this forever. Like, um, you know, you want to use my store locator, that's fine. Like, you only have to give me this, this permission for this session and then it goes away, which incidentally is what Safari, at least on mobile, uh, I don't remember about desktop, but that's what it does. It resets it at every... Um, every time you relaunch the, the site, um, even if it's been granted before. So I, I think, you know, getting a little bit better about how we're approaching permissioning. Um, I know for file handling, for instance, um, in a tab, I believe it is only allowed for the session. Um, and I think there was, there was some talk about if you've installed that PWA to grant the file handling for the, the life of the, the PWA while it's installed, because you've taken that extra step to say, you know, I, I want to install this. I trust this to the point where I want it to be, you know, at least temporarily on my computer. And therefore, like once you grant the permission, rather than it kind of pestering you over and over again, it, it can just keep it for the, uh, for the length of time that it exists on your device. Uh, when talking about permissions, uh, my, my first thought was permission fatigue. Uh, I'm wondering if that's uh, like on the radar of W3C or? Yeah, I think it's on everybody's radar, honestly, is trying to figure out how do we do permissioning better? Because it, it really is the sort of thing where you're playing whack-a-mole, um, very much like pop-ups in the days of old. Um, and you know, you even have some sites, thankfully not a whole lot of them, but it, but some sites where they won't even render any content until you grant them permission to their to your location or something like that, which is just bizarre to me. Um, so you know, I think we need to figure out a better approach to that. Something that um, sort of forces um, developers to take the right approach to permissioning. Um, I think we're seeing some of that with some of the quieter notification approaches that uh, that Chrome and Edge have implemented. Um, I'm not sure if that's been implemented elsewhere too, but I know they're they're sort of um, based on website reputation, which includes like how many times people have dismissed the prompt for notification capability. They basically like make that just become a little bug in the, the Omnibar or something like that. So I think those sorts of uh, mitigations are going to reduce that fatigue. And I, I'm hopeful that things like being able to ask for permission, multiple permissions at the same time will help with that as well so that you're not doing kind of, I mean, I'm sure all, all of us at this point have probably had that experience where you open up a new app and you just get that rapid fire permission, 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 permission request, which I'm all for just-in-time permissions when you're actually using a feature that requires that permission, but so many apps don't do that, and they ask for a bunch of permissions at once anyway, and so it just becomes this sort of uh, annoying uh, whack-a-mole situation. Uh, just curious, which uh, uh, Fugu API uh, are you most excited for that's coming up? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like 
the the some of the file handling stuff is really interesting. I think being able to declare a web app to be a file handler for a particular kind of file is really cool. Um, I'm also really intrigued by some of the um, like like the contact picker. Um, you know, it's something I've been thinking a bit about. Was you know how do we how do we expose address book um, to websites in a very privacy preserving way where users are in control of um, whose information and what information we share? Because um, I remember you know certainly this has happened since then, but I, I distinctly remember Path when that app came out on iOS and it had access to your address book. And the first thing it did was basically hoover up your, your address book and send it up to their server. And now they have all your contacts and we can't have that sort of thing on the web. That is you know, just a recipe for disaster. So um, so yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued by a lot of that stuff that that's going on. I think um, URL handling is interesting, being able to basically route requests within a browser back into your PWA. That's kind of a cool idea. Um, and you know, we've already had things like registering protocol handlers in JavaScript, but now that's something that you can also define in your, um, in your web app manifest. Um, so there's some neat things like that. I'm, I'm super in love with things like share target. I find that to be a really, um, awesome tool. And in fact, I use that on my own website, even though my site's a blog, it's a PWA and I have a, share target for it that I, I use just for myself um, so that I can basically take any uh, any web page and share it to my PWA and it pre-populates a form that creates a link blog entry for me in GitHub. Um, and that sort of like self-service PWA is pretty amazing like the, that I can create that workflow just by adding you know five lines to my manifest is, is really awesome. So you mentioned earlier, um, you know, a lot of what you do also focuses on DEI, diversity, equity, diversity, equity, inclusion efforts. Um, I guess both at Microsoft and maybe within the web at large. So, how does like some of the things we've already talked about, whether it's PWAs or web standards, tailor in with um, kind of that focus on diversity and equity and inclusion? So, I think there is a, a movement within the standards community, but certainly within, you know, the work that we're trying to do to make sure that we're building a web for everyone and to create more opportunity. And that's what kind of had me excited about progressive web apps early on is that I saw it as a way of being able to reach beyond. Um, so, you know, you, you think about something like a WhatsApp, for instance, right, before they were acquired by Facebook, um, they were huge um, when it came to messaging. And, and effectively, they were just an encrypted messaging app, right? And those, you know, at, at the time were a dime a dozen in the, the iOS app store, right? Um, I think when I, when I checked it, there was something like 2,700 encrypted messaging apps that were available in the app store. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of was thinking on that and thinking about, you know, what, it, what is it that made them so valuable to Facebook. And it was the fact that they had so many users. And why did they have so many users? Well, they were embracing a diversity of platforms. You know, they were on Series 60 devices. They were they were in all of these places that weren't just, you know, the, the shiny black rectangles that we have in our pockets that are the latest and greatest devices with high-end specs and awesome cameras and all that sort of stuff. Um, 
and I think by creating a, an app experience that can be used by more people, we we automatically create more opportunity to have more customers and to build more value. So, you know, with my business hat on, when I'm thinking about things like accessibility and inclusion, um, that is what I'm thinking about, right? Like creating more opportunities for these people to come and use our, our product or our service. Um, but I don't think we get there without having a plurality of people working on these products. So if, if your team is, you know, all, all looks one particular way and comes from one particular background and, you know, a handful of schools, y'all are going to have, you know, even though you may have had different life experiences, y'all are going to have kind of a perspective that is shaped by that and, and that is reinforced by the experiences that you've had collectively, right? Um, and so when we design for people that look like us, we exclude people that don't look like us. Or when we design for people who have experiences we do, um, we exclude people who don't have those experiences or have, who have different experiences, different concerns. Um, you know, and so I, I think about, I try to think about things like people's safety. I try to, you know, I, and, and uh, Eva Penzi Moog has a, a great book called Design for Safety that just came out. Highly recommend folks look at that. Um, but it talks about how, you know, we've, we've approached all of these, you know, technical ideas, um, considering only the happy path, not how they could be used for abuse, uh, or gaslighting or, or what have you. And, um, you know, we need a diversity of perspectives on our team to catch that stuff early so that we create products that are actually, um, working for the broadest number of people around the world. Um, and so I, that's, that's why I've gotten super involved in sort of the, the diversity, inclusion, belonging, et cetera, um, space is because, you know, not only is it the right thing to do, not only, you know, is, is the talent out there equally distributed, even though the opportunity to, to showcase that talent isn't to, to sort of, um, paraphrase Tatiana Mack, but, um, you know, I, I think until we have teams that are actually representative of the customers that we either have or that we aspire to have, we're not going to be creating products that are actually useful for those people. So that's why I'm super passionate in that space and, and try to bring that into all of the work that we're doing. And I, I feel like we're getting there in the standard space. Um, as with many areas in computer science, it is, you know, uh, sort of heavily populated by, by white and Asian males. Um, but I think that's changing. Yeah, often it seems like a chicken egg problem. I, I've tried many times, for instance, to like, oh, uh, to, to argue to PMs like, oh, we should, you know, make sure our app loads fast in, you know, all these other countries besides the US. But then they say, oh, well, we don't have customers outside the US. Well, well, maybe we would if it loaded yeah. fast. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, to kind of look back, look back in history um, a bit at a list apart when this is way back in the day when we no longer served um, our like CSS layouts to Netscape 4, all of a sudden our Netscape 4 numbers shot up because the experience was not great. We turned It turned out that we were artificially suppressing the number of people who uh, could use our site well in Netscape 4. And I think we see that all over the place where, where folks just aren't considering um, the experiences that, that they're creating and how can, how can we build something that's going to work for as many people as possible? Because, you know, a portion of those people are potentially going to spend money on our products and are going to keep us employed and help us to make our product even better. So like, why not try and reach them? And, um, that's why I'm, I'm super intrigued by things like collaborative design, um, you know, that's, that's something that has existed for a long time in the disability community where they have, have the saying nothing about us without us. 
um, where you really want to get folks from those communities to be involved in the process of creating your application or your service in order to make sure that you're meeting their needs and, and catching potential problems early on. You mentioned Alyssa Part. Uh, can we talk a little bit more about that? It's probably the number one um, design blog from the early days of the internet that I remember. Uh, so incredibly influential. Um, when did you start uh, editing uh, for Alyssa Part? So I, I have kind of gone off and on with ALA for a number of years. Um, my first um, sort of foray into working on Alyssa Part was I think somewhere between 2005 and 2006, I initially came on as a copy editor after after meeting Jeffrey Zeldman at South by Southwest. Um, and I was kind of helping out with things there. And then he realized that I would be super helpful in a, sort of a technical editor space. So I moved into that. Um, and I was one of the, uh, the technical editing team uh, members along with Dan Mall and Matt Marquis and a bunch of other awesome folks. Uh, for quite a long time, and then just got so busy with work that I didn't have the time to commit to it. So I, I took a break um, and, and left ALA for a couple of years. And then, gosh, I guess it was 2017, maybe 2018, somewhere in there. Um, Jeffrey reached out to me and asked if I'd be interested in coming back and coming on as the editor-in-chief. And that was just kind of like clouds parted, sun came out, you know, <laughs> all that sort of experience. It was pretty, pretty amazing to, to be asked to do that. And, and such a, a huge privilege, uh, but such a huge responsibility as well. And so, you know, since sort of taking over um, at A List Apart, I've been really focused in very much the, the same way as we were just talking about, um, increasing the diversity of our voices, making sure that we have more representation in our illustrations, that we are, um, more approachable to people from from uh, more backgrounds and and who've had different experiences and and making sure that our pieces are reflective of the reality out there because you know as I would go around speaking and and doing workshops and stuff like that I saw a huge diversity in the people that were coming to those workshops that were that were doing the roles especially in government and education and stuff like that but those were not the voices that we were hearing from in articles. And so, you know, wanted to make sure that we were doing outreach to other communities and, and trying to engage with more people globally as well. Um, and I, it's all a process, but I, I feel like we've been making some some good strides in that area. So Aaron, it's been great talking today and, um, you know, learning about all these, uh, all these interesting projects you're involved in. Um, I'm curious for folks out there who want to learn more about PWAs. What's what's the best way to get started? What's the best way to, to learn about um, you know about that platform? Yeah, so I think if if people want just like a really quick and dirty, how do I get a PWA stood up? Um, PWABuilder.com is a great resource. You can actually plug in your URL and it will help you build out a web app manifest. It will help you to um, you know, pick a, a service worker from, you know, one of a couple of recipes. And honestly, you could get a PWA stood up in about 15 minutes using their resources, which is pretty amazing. Um, there are a couple of, of good books out there on, on PWAs. I definitely recommend Going Offline by Jeremy Keith and uh, Progressive Web Apps by Jason Grigsby. Those are two fantastic books. Um, and then if, if folks are interested in really tucking into sort of the, the philosophies that I've been talking about in terms of reaching more people and, and sort of building um, more robust web experiences. I wrote a book called Adaptive Web Design. The second edition of that came out a couple of years ago. Um, 
but unlike a lot of tech books, it's more philosophy based than strategy and, and sort of technical approach based. So it, it has a little bit longer legs. will will live on your shelf for a lot longer and be useful for longer than most tech books. Um, and the, uh, the first edition of that's also available online for free, but the second edition I totally rewrote and I think is a lot better for it. It integrates accessibility into every step in the process, as opposed to keeping it as a distinct chapter, which I think was a, made the book much stronger. Great. Well, Aaron, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah. Thank you all very much for having me. It's great to talk to you. Thanks for listening to Pod Rocket. Find us at Pod Rocket Pod on Twitter, or you could always email me, even though that's not a popular option. It's Brian at Log Rocket. <laughs>